you need a Bible this morning, you can find the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament. There's some notes if you'd like to follow along. Our Sunday morning series is called Wisdom. We're not walking through the book of Proverbs verse by verse, but we're looking at different themes, different topics in the book of Proverbs. I had a pastor friend call me yesterday to wish me happy birthday, and while we were talking, he asked me what I was preaching on, and I said, I'm talking about pride. It's going to be a big stretch for me to relate to this on any level. That was his response. We're going to talk about pride, obviously something we want to put to death in our life. We're also, by implication, going to talk about humility. Our focus really is going to be pride, but the flip of that is humility, which we want to cultivate in our lives. The definition of wisdom that we've been building off of is this. Wisdom is fearing God, knowing God's will, and living in light of God's will. If you're going to have any success, any growth, any progress, any Christ-likeness when it comes to the issue of pride, you really got to nail down the first part of this definition, and that is fearing God. You've got to have a biblical, an accurate, a true understanding of who God is if you're ever going to understand who you are and approach Him in humility. You've also got to have an understanding of what God's will is. You've got to know his will. And that doesn't mean, is it God's will that I do this or I do that or I go here or I go there? But what is God's revealed will? Not his secret will, like all the decisions you make in your life and you want to make sure you make the right one. But what does he tell you to do and how does he tell you to live in his word? And then you've actually got to live it out, which is certainly a challenge when it comes to this issue of pride and humility. Let me start with a story about a guy named King Louis XIV of France. He lived in the 1700s, and, you know, the first picture I pulled up of him, I thought, oh, that was a bad hair day when they painted that picture. And I kept looking up pictures, and I kept seeing the exact same hairstyle. The, the poses differed, uh, the color of the leggings differed. The robes differed, the pose, all that stuff differed, but the hair was the same. And the more I looked at those, the more I thought about our own beloved worship leader. And Thursday, <laughs> Thursday I had lunch with Tyler and a group of guys, and I sat directly across from him. And I'd been looking at these pictures all week, and all I could imagine is if we only had enough hairspray, we could just we could get it up. We could, we could recreate it. So Louis XIV. He assumed the throne at the age of four, king of France. He ruled until he was 76 years old, which means his reign lasted 72 years, the longest reign of any European monarch. Uh, The current queen of England, it seems like she's been around forever. She needs at least six more years to catch Louis XIV. He, He lived a long time. He reigned a long time. He is not remembered by historians as a humble man. He is remembered as a vain man. You didn't call him Louis. You didn't call him King Louis. He gave you two options that you could call him during his life. One was Louis the Great. The other, the Sun King. It's up to you. Louis the Great or the Sun King. In his life, he posed, are you ready for this? for over 300 self-portraits. I know he reigned a long time, but I can't imagine how you get anything done in your life if you're posing for 300 
different portraits. He loved to have his, his likeness portrayed. He was arrogant. He was vain. He was prideful. Uh, he admitted later in his life that he started, started multiple wars for no other reason than he wanted to make a name for himself. He didn't want to be remembered as a king who didn't win battles. So he said, well, I need to go pick a fight with somebody so that I can win. And they can remember me as somebody who won all of these great battles. All of this vanity you see in his life continued into his death. He died in 1717, and he gave very detailed instructions about what he wanted to happen at his funeral. He picked the basilica just outside of Paris where he wanted his funeral to be held. That's the outside shot of the basilica, and that's what it looked like then and today on the inside. And the instructions were pretty simple. He had all sorts of different events planned for his funeral, but at the actual ceremony in the basilica, he said, I want you to cover the windows, all the stained glass. I don't want there to be any light in the room. I want you to put my body in a casket made of solid gold. I want you to put it up at the front of the room for everybody to see, and on top of the casket made of solid gold with my body, all the lights off in the room, one candle for the sun king. So he was the king. They carried out his orders to a T, except for one part. The priest who was assigned duty to speak at this funeral, pardon my my French pronunciation here, but his name was Jean-Baptiste Massillon. He risked his life and he broke protocol. He broke the order of service at the beginning of the ceremony. Everything was dark. The lights were dimmed. The, the windows were covered. There was one candle on the golden casket at the very front. He walked up to the front rather than up to the platform. He walked up to that candle and he snuffed it out. And he turned around in the almost dark cathedral and he looked at the audience and he said this, Only God is great. And then he continued with the funeral. You hear that story after I've told you about Louis XIV, the Sun King, Louis the Great, and all his pride. And there's something within us that says, "At a boy, you got you told him he couldn't get up and say anything, he couldn't get even with you, he couldn't demand your head on a plate, and you got him. You sort of got the last word in and put him in his place. And we like that. Maybe we like that in part because we're Americans and we just like it when a Frenchman gets put in their place. Maybe we like it because when you see pride in someone else, it's ugly. It's disgusting. It's repulsive. And when you look at somebody else who is so obviously consumed with self, it's such a vile thing in our eyes that we like this moment when the proud person gets put in their place. This morning, I want to challenge you to think honestly about pride. And I want you to reflect on whether or not pride may be an issue in your life. It probably doesn't look like it looked in the life of Louis the Great in your life. It probably looks different. The manifestations are different. But the exact same issue may be present in your heart. Let me go to a guy named C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis was an atheist literature professor at Oxford. He was not a follower of Jesus. He had several friends who shared the gospel with him, who witnessed to him. And he wrote a book after he became a follower of Jesus called Mere Christianity. I read the book for the first time in high school. We've got it in our library right around the corner out here. If you've never read it, you should pick it up. It's a fascinating book about lots of different things, reflecting on faith, reflecting on what it means to follow Jesus. And in that book, he talks about pride. And this is what Lewis says 
about pride. He says there is one vice of which no man or woman in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. I've heard people admit that they are bad-tempered or that they cannot keep their heads about girls or drink, or even that they're cowards. I do not think I have ever heard anyone who was not a Christian accuse himself of this vice. At the same time, I have very seldom met anyone who was not a Christian who showed the slightest mercy to it in others. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular, and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it in ourselves, he's talking about pride, the more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. It may be that when you hear the story of Louis XIV, you feel so repulsed and disgusted and turned off because this is an issue in your life. And the manifestations may be completely different in your life than the life of the Sun King. But it may be an issue nonetheless. And this morning we're going to try to listen to the book of Proverbs. Let me give you just a biblical definition of pride and humility before we jump into the text. I'll put this on the screen and it's in your notes. Pride is not thinking too much of ourselves. Sometimes we limit pride into this category of you have an inflated self-ego. You're, you're too boastful or arrogant about your own greatness. Pride in the Bible is just thinking of ourselves too much. doesn't have to be that you spend all your time thinking about how great you are. It may just be that you spend all your time thinking about you. And on the flip side, humility is not that we need to think less of ourselves. It's not that we just need to sort of crawl in a hole and say, well, I'm worthless, I'm lousy, I'm the worst. It's that we need to think of ourselves Less. We just need to spend less time thinking about ourselves, period. That's humility, and we're going to see what the book of Proverbs has to say about pride. Now look, Proverbs says a lot of things about pride. We're not going to talk about all of them. We're just going to talk about some central ideas that you can't miss. So here we go. What does God say about pride in the book of Proverbs? Number one, pride is a sin. You got to start there. And I know that's basic and I know that's elementary and I know that's kind of low level, but you got to start there. Pride is a sin. Look at Proverbs 21, verse 4. We'll put it up on the screen. Haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked are sin. Now, when you look at this poetry, this Hebrew poetry, you understand a couple of things here. He is equating haughty eyes and a proud heart. Those are the same thing. It's different ways of describing the same issue. Haughty eyes and a proud heart. It says the lamp of the wicked are sin. A couple of things you need to see that you can't miss. Number one, pride is a heart issue. Most basically and most fundamentally, it's a heart issue. Now, in your life, that heart issue very, very well may spill over into an external manifestation, say, of boasting. You may be a braggart. You may like to tell everyone how great you are. You may be the kind of person that always has to talk. You always have to one-up everyone's story. You always have to jump in. The conversation always has to turn back to you. That may be how pride manifests itself in your life. But you may be none of those things externally. 
And pride may still be an issue for you. Because in its most basic form, it's not what comes out of your mouth, but it's what's in your heart. It's a focus issue. And if you are the focus of your own life, if everything in your mind and your heart revolves around you, whether or not you say it publicly or you live it publicly, if that's what the reality is in your heart, then this is describing you. Haughty eyes and a proud heart are sin. Now, the second thing I need you to see is this. The wicked person is driven by pride. And there's a translation issue here. Some of you are reading out of the King James. Some of you are reading uh, out of the NIV. And in both of those translations, there's words in this verse that talk about plowing. Talk about work of some sort. But almost every other translation that you might read through doesn't talk about plowing. It talks about this idea of the lamp of the wicked. And I think this is the better translation. And I think the idea is this. In a world without electricity or electric lights or street lights, if you wanted to get around in the dark, you needed a lamp. You needed something to guide you. You needed something to show you the way. And what the author of Proverbs is saying is, haughty eyes and a proud heart are the lamp of the wicked. It's what guides them. It's what directs them. It's how they put one foot in front of the other. It's how they make decisions. It's how they know what they're going to do next or what they're going to do tomorrow. It's all about them. It's about their pride. It's about their focus on self. That's what drives them forward. And so we start with this basic idea, pride is a sin. Secondly, God hates pride. Now I know that that's implied in what we just said. It's a sin. But we're just going to build a case here. God hates pride. Look at Proverbs chapter 6. It says, There's six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. You read a phrase like that several times in Proverbs. It's not that the author couldn't make up his or her mind if they wanted to include six or seven things in the list. That's not what's going on. It's just sort of a Hebrew idiom to say, I'm about to list out a bunch of things that God hates. It's not to say that these are the only things that he hates. But here are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. It doesn't mean six are bad and the seventh is even worse. It just means here's a list of things that God is not thrilled with at all. First on that list is haughty eyes. It goes on to say a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. And we could talk about all of those in a different topic, but the first thing on that list is haughty eyes. The exact same phrase we just saw in the previous passage that is used parallel to a proud heart. Pride in somebody's life is something that God hates. To lift a phrase right out of this passage, it is an abomination to God. Not just the external manifestation of boasting, but pride in your heart, haughty eyes, a focus on self, the idea in your mind that everything revolves around you. That is an abomination to the Lord. And I just want you to stop and think about what that text is saying. As a bunch of people, myself included, who spend an awful lot of time focusing on us, on self, thinking about what we want, 
thinking about how we want something to go, thinking about our preferences, thinking about our rights, us, us, us. Proverbs 6 says that issue in your life is something that God hates. It's not something that he looks at and says, "Eh, I sure wish they'd deal with that. That's kind of annoying. It's not just like a pet peeve to him. It's an abomination to the Lord. So we're building this case. Pride is a sin. Pride is something, secondly, that God hates. And number three, pride will be punished. It will be punished. Proverbs 16, 5. says, everyone who is arrogant in heart. There's that idea again. Arrogant in your heart. Listen. The whole world may look at you and say, you're such a humble person. But if your private thought life is always and exclusively and only centered on you, this verse is talking about you. I don't care what other people say about you. I don't care how your your friends or your coworkers or your fellow students or your boss or your employees, how they evaluate you. I'm asking you to evaluate yourself on a heart level. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. I think that verse is a little bit stronger than most of us are comfortable with. How many of you growing up maybe in church life or Baptist life have heard the old catchphrase, God hates the sin but he loves the sinner? You've heard that phrase, right? It's really dangerous. Because it has just enough truth in it to be wrong. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you've repented of your sin and trusted in Jesus, that statement is true for you. God does love you because he sees you through his son. He sees you as spotless and as sinless and as righteous and as perfect. And he does hate the sin in your life, but he most certainly has a love for you. If you are in Christ... But if you're not a follower of Jesus and you haven't looked to Jesus for forgiveness and for righteousness, there is nothing in that silly little catchphrase for you. Notice what the verse says. The last passage says, haughty eyes. The issue itself is an abomination to the Lord. But look at this verse. Everyone. That's the subject. Everyone. We're talking about people. We're not talking about sin in the abstract. We're talking about actual people who are prideful who are arrogant and boastful in their heart. Those people are an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he, not just the sin, he, that person, that prideful person will not go unpunished. I think this is a little bit stronger than what most of us are comfortable with. We like the catchphrase. We like the idea that we can separate sinners from their sin just nicely and neatly and easily. And we can say, well, God's angry with a lot of things, but he just loves everybody. He's just a big teddy bear. He can't help it. He just loves you. And Proverbs walks into our lives and just blows that idea out of the water. Look, if you're in Christ, it's completely true that God loves you, the sinner, and he hates your sin, and he's done everything that he needed to do to punish it and to make it right between you and him at the cross. But if you are not a follower of Jesus, there's this this fictional separation between you and your sin is just a fantasy. 
Proverbs says that's who you are. Prideful at heart, arrogant at heart, haughty eyes at heart. And you are the abomination. And the text ends with this haunting promise. Be assured that person will not go unpunished. So look, that's bad news. That's really bad news for a bunch of people, me and you, who live our lives pretty much focused on ourselves. What the text is saying is our fundamental orientation as human beings, focusing on self, is sinful. It's something that God hates, and it's something that will not go unpunished. It will not just be swept under the rug and forgotten and winked at. So where do we go from here? How do we battle pride? Three thoughts as we end. Number one, confess pride as sin. That's where you have to start. You have to confess your pride as sin. You've got to call it what it is and name it what it is. You can't make excuses for it. You can't compare yourself to Louis the Fourteenth. You can't get on social media and compare yourself to all the people that you think are so wrapped up in their own lives. You've just got to be honest with yourself on a heart level and say, God, this is an issue for me. I am prideful. Maybe not in the sense that I have the biggest ego or I think I'm the greatest, but I'm prideful in the sense that I spend a lot of my time focused on self. Confess it. 1 John 1.9 is a great place to start. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In your life and my life, that's the first step with pride is just to acknowledge it is sinful. It is an abomination to the Lord. It isn't something that's just going to go unpunished, and I have got to begin by confessing that to the Lord. First, John comes in and gives you a whole lot of hope. It says if you do that, God is faithful and just to forgive us. You ever thought about the paradox of those words? Right? We just read in Proverbs those who are proud and arrogant and haughty in their heart, those people will not go unpunished. And now John seemingly says the exact opposite if you confess it, you will be forgiven. And what stands between John and the author of Proverbs is the cross where Jesus dies as a sacrifice for proud, arrogant, haughty, boastful, self-centered, self-focused people like me and you. And because he has paid the penalty for our sin, John says, God will be faithful and he will be just to forgive you. Not because it's not a big deal, not because he's just going to sweep it under the rug, but because the price and the penalty has been paid. Jesus died for your pride. And if you confess it, you will find forgiveness. So first, we confess. Second, we live Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs 3. Every young person, every middle-aged person, every old person should memorize Proverbs 3. You should read it regularly. You should go through and think about it. You should meditate on it. Let's just work through the passage. Start in verse 1. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart, notice that word, let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Again, we're talking on a heart level. 
Then you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Right out of the gate, Proverbs chapter 3, the author is saying, look, you've got to be committed to true teaching, to sound doctrine. You've got to be committed to the Word of God, and it's got to be a commitment that's true in your life on a heart level. External conformity, worthless, meaningless. It has no value for you or any other person. This has got to be true for you on a heart level. You read that, and I read that, if we're really honest and we say, my heart is a mess. How can I do that? How can, I, how can I live out this kind of commitment on a heart level when I know my own heart? I may have everyone else fooled, but I know my own heart. I know how dark it is. I know how black it is. I know how wicked it is. I know how deceitful it is. How can I live that out? And the answer is, you can't change your own heart, but God can. And so you come to God and you ask God to do what you can't do and what only he can do, and that is to change your heart. That's the essence of faith. Trusting God to do what you can't do. And that's the exact thing that comes next in Proverbs 3. Look at verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes, but fear the Lord. There's that idea of fearing the Lord. Turn away from evil. There's that idea of living wisdom out in your life. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Look, the fundamental issue here in verse 5, 6, 7, 8 is, will your heart be oriented toward self or toward God? Will you trust in your wisdom or God's wisdom? Will you live for your glory or for God's glory? This is a fundamental decision that you've got to make in your life. Is my life going to be God-centered or is it going to be self-centered? Verse 9, honor the Lord with your wealth. You say, when did we start talking about money? Honor the Lord with your wealth and the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. The author of Proverbs understands something really important. You can come to church and you can fill in all the blanks on my little outline and you can nod at all the right points and you can shake your head at all the wrong points and you can go through all the externals. You can sing the songs with the band. But at the end of the day, the proof's in the pudding, so to speak. Proof's in your wallet, we might say. The way you handle money is a reflection of what's really going on in your heart. Where does your money go? Does it all go to you? Well, you probably have an issue with pride. When you think about money, do you think about it as something that you have earned on your own? If so, then you probably got an issue with pride. Is money something that you constantly worry about and fret about and think about and wonder if you're going to have enough? If so, you probably have an issue with pride. Look, on the heart level, when we cut through all the church external, spiritual, religious stuff, and we just get, get down to real life, on a heart level, this is going to play out in how you deal with money. And the author of Proverbs understands that. A humble person understands God has given me this money. It's not my money. I'm a steward of what he's entrusted to me. I didn't earn this. I don't deserve this. This isn't something I've come up with by pulling myself up by my own bootstraps. God has blessed me with these things, and I need to be faithful in this. So he says, right in here in this talk about pride and trusting God and what humility looks like, he says, money 
is going to be one of the tests. And then he ends with this, verse 11 and 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. In your life, when you experience the discipline of the Lord, how do you respond to that? Do you bow up against it? Do you get angry? Do you get frustrated? Do you come at God with a thousand questions? If that's true, then what you probably assume is that God pretty much owes you comfort and success and money and prosperity. And when you experience his discipline, if your first reaction is to bow up against that, to be angry, to say, I don't deserve this. What did I do for this to happen to me? Why is God doing this in my life? If that's your first gut natural response, the author of Proverbs is saying there's an issue with pride in your life. Look, when you understand who God is and you understand who you are, you understand that the only thing that God owes you is death. And you won't chafe up against his discipline. You won't bow up against his discipline. You won't be angry and frustrated with his discipline. But you'll realize that this is the Lord disciplining his son, and he does that for the people that he loves. So we try to live out Proverbs 3. Last, number three, most important, we trust, worship, and follow Jesus. We trust, worship, and follow Jesus. One of the most important passages in the entire Bible is Philippians 2. We'll put it up on the screen and we'll read through it. Paul says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility, underline that word humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. There's that idea of focus. Are you focused only on your own interests or are you focused on other people? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who? though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself. There's that idea of humility. How did he humble himself? He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why? Why did he die? Why did he have to humble himself in this way? It's because we're proud, selfish haughty, boastful, self-centered people. Became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. He bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Look, Paul is writing to his friends in Philippi, and he says, listen, if you live as a bunch, a bunch of pride, prideful, boastful, haughty, self-centered people, it's not going to work. It's going to be a mess. It's all going to fall apart. What you need to do is not look to your own interests, but look to the interests of others. How do you do that? You've got to look to Jesus, the one who humbled himself by becoming a servant, by becoming obedient to the point of death on a cross, Death on a cross for sinful, prideful, self-centered people like us so that we could be forgiven, so that when we confess our sins, God is just and he's faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What Paul's saying is this, look, you have got to trust in what Jesus has done for you. 
You can't fix this problem of pride on your own. You've got to have faith in what Jesus has done on your behalf. You've got to worship Jesus for what he's done. This has got to be the center of your life. It's got to be the focus that God became man to die for people who had rebelled, pridefully rebelled against him. That's the center, and we worship him for that. And then Paul says you follow that example in your life. You don't just go and talk about it. You don't just go and memorize verses about it. But just as we've talked about all the way through the book of Proverbs, you fear God, you know his will, and you actually live in light of his will. And Paul says you do the exact same thing. You trust in Jesus, you worship Jesus, you bow, you confess, and you follow the exact same example. You have this mind in yourselves, and you have it in Jesus Christ. So that's pride. I'm going to ask you to bow And I want you to spend a few minutes thinking about pride in your life. I want you to think about, on a heart level, where this issue hits home for you. I want you to think about not just ego, but focus. Where is your focus in life? What do your dreams center on? What do your fears center on? What do your plans revolve around? If you are at the center of all of these things, then the book of Proverbs is warning you that you have an issue of pride in your life that needs to be dealt with. 